For Caesar is an honourable man. Hitler's diplomacy in the 1930s. This is the second in the sequence of podcasts about uh, Hitler's actions in the 1930s and the lead-up towards appeasement and the origins of the Second World War. Before you listen to this one, I think it's important to make sure that you have definitely listened to the first one, which is about Hitler's aims in foreign policy. If you don't have those things locked into your head, you're going to find understanding what we're about to talk about quite difficult because you won't see why Hitler and Germany are acting as they do. So, just to recap, the main aims are to unite all German-speaking people under Hitler's control in a greater Germany, to make Germany a great power again, and to find Lebensraum living space for this greater Germany in the East. In order to do this, Hitler is going to have to undo the Treaty of Versailles step by step by step. So that being said, where are we at the beginning of the 1930s? Germany has joined the League of Nations in 1926 and has signed the Locarno Treaties. The Locarno Treaties were an agreement by all of the European powers that they would respect the borders established by the Treaty of Versailles. This is seen as the cornerstone of ensuring that there is no further war in Europe over territorial demands. By 1932, the League has announced a disarmament conference. Remember, one of the main aims of the League of Nations was to ensure that all countries disarmed. And France has never laid down its arms because it is scared of Germany. The only country to have been disarmed as a result of the First World War is Germany. So when Hitler comes to power in 1933, one of his first actions is to withdraw from the Disarmament Conference and from the League. His statement when he does this is quite simple. We will disarm if other countries will. It's a perfectly reasonable position, and it quite neatly disguises what he really wants to do. He does not want other countries to disarm. He wants to rearm Germany, which he immediately starts to do. And in 1935, he introduces conscription. Remember, conscription is the practice of requiring everybody in your country to serve in your army for a given term of years. That is how you build up your armed force and also build up a trained population who can be called up in times of war. Germany's army reduced to a hundred thousand men after the First World War and with no ability to have conscription is small and very weak in comparison to the other European countries. And if Hitler is to make Germany a great power again, he needs a larger army. Conscription will allow him to do that. And he's given an excuse. Well, I say he's given an excuse. He probably would have done this anyway, but he's able to excuse doing it by saying that France has increased the terms of its conscription from one year to 18 months. Now, that's obviously going to increase the size of the French army which Hitler can suggest makes him worried and makes him want to reintroduce conscription in Germany. The reason that France lengthened its terms of conscription, of course, was because it was worried about Germany withdrawing from the League and from the Disarmament Conference. 
So why did none of the countries take any action when it becomes obvious that Germany is rearming? Well, there is some fairly weak action. The stressor front, the arrangement of France and Britain and Italy, issues a protest and as a result of this move towards rearmament, the USSR, who see themselves as Hitler's main target, which of course, if you remember the idea of Lebensraum, well, they are. So the USSR, to protect itself, joins the League. But no concrete action is taken to try and stop Germany. Why? The main reason is that Britain had always regarded the terms of the Treaty of Versailles as being a little unfair, a bit too harsh. You'll remember that Lloyd George was the one who was sitting there at the conference arguing for a more lenient approach towards Germany. So Britain does not see a problem with Germany rearming. Britain doesn't intend to take action. And if Britain is not going to take action, then what's France going to do? What, what are their options? They could invade. Well, then what? They stay there, take over the entire country? They attempted to invade part of Germany during the Ruhr crisis of 1923, and that hadn't worked well. And in that situation, Britain actually sided with Germany. So France feels as though it can't act without the backing of Britain, and Britain has no intention of acting. And this highlights the development of Hitler's general tactic throughout this period. Throughout the early years of the 1930s, you will see the same tactic over and over and over again. Hitler will bluster, and he will threaten force, and then he will get what he wants and immediately follow it up with promises of peace and the appearance of being a statesman and a reasonable, honourable man. Remember, withdraws from the disarmament conference, but then says, I'll come back if everybody else will disarm perfectly reasonable point, but not what he wants to do. Likewise, I am only reintroducing conscription because France has increased the terms of their conscription. And generally, throughout the 1930s, you will see that this tactic has the same result every time, which is the threat stops France from acting and Britain believes the promises of peace, and so they do not act. Let's look at some more examples from the 1930s so you can get a sense for how this tactic of Hitler's is working out for him. He signs a 10-year non-aggression pact with Poland. This is a perfect example of him demonstrating peaceful intentions. As part of this 10-year non-aggression pact, he agrees that Germany will abide by the border set up by the Treaty of Versailles. Now, if you remember his aims in foreign policy, you know that Hitler has no intention of abiding by the border set up during the Treaty of Versailles. So the 10-year non-aggression pact is an absolute nonsense, but it does the job, which is to reassure Poland that Hitler has no intention of taking the Polish corridor or Danzig, and also it soothes Britain, and it helps Britain believe that Hitler is a reasonable man with whom they can do business, and he is only really attempting to undo the wrongs of the Treaty of Versailles. A good example of Hitler's use of bluster and threat is his attempt to unite Austria and Germany in 1934. You'll remember the term for this is Anschluss, the Union of Austria and Germany. 
and this was specifically forbidden by the Treaty of Versailles, Anschluss verboten. So, in 1934, Hitler attempts to trigger an Anschluss by getting the Nazi party in Austria to foment unrest. And at this point, it's worth just reminding yourself, because it will become important again later on, that National Socialism, Nazism, is not a specifically German phenomenon. It is a political movement. And just like you would have communist parties in other countries, you have Nazi parties in other countries. So the Nazi party in Austria, under the encouragement of Hitler, starts causing extra disturbances starts trying to destabilize the country. These increase to the point where Dolphus, the Austrian Chancellor, is murdered. And Hitler is preparing himself to step in and restore order, bring order back to Austria, and simply by coincidence, bring Austria into his greater Germany. Mussolini, who at this point is still part of the stress of front, remember, realizes that he does not want a unified Germany and Austria sitting on Italy's northern border. That's a bit of a threat to him. So he moves the Italian army up to the northern border with Austria and issues a public statement in which he guarantees Austria's independence. And it's very instructive that Hitler backs down. Hitler does not force the issue. He immediately pulls back and says that all of the disruption and everything was absolutely nothing to do with him. The realisation that the German army is not strong enough is one of the contributing factors to him accelerating rearmament in 1935. But possibly more importantly, the attempted Anschluss of 1934 is proof that Adolf Hitler uses bluff and bluster and will back down when challenged. Another example of the peaceful approach is the 1935 Anglo-German Naval Agreement. The background to this is you have to remember that Hitler regards the United Kingdom as natural allies for a number of reasons, not least of which, in his racialist approach to the world, the British are blood Germans. Therefore, they are natural allies. And Hitler's conception of the world is that the British should run the rest of the world and Germany should run Europe. And he would be quite happy with that as a way forward. So, the 1935 Anglo-German Naval Agreement is seen by Hitler as a way to open the door to closer and closer relations with Britain. And what it does is it limits the German Navy to 35% of the British fleet, with no submarines. Now, to Britain, this proves his peaceful intentions, and it lets Great Britain feel Germany out and get a sense for the kind of things that they want. The outcome of it is that it weakens the stress affront because Britain has done this without any form of negotiation or communication with France or with Italy and perhaps more importantly by entering into a treaty which breaks the terms of the Treaty of Versailles Britain has allowed Germany has more or less given an official seal of approval to Germany rearming. And the rearmament increases. 
it gathers pace. By 1938, the German army is 800,000 men. They have 47 U-boats, which of course breaks the Anglo-German naval agreement, and they have 2,000 aircraft in the Luftwaffe. The UK cannot complain about this because they tacitly agreed to German rearmament by entering into the Anglo-German naval agreement. In 1935, there is a plebiscite in the Saar. A plebiscite, remember, is a vote of all the people living there, like a referendum. And, as laid out in the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, the plebiscite was about whether the Saar coalfields would return to Germany, remain under the control of the League of Nations, or be given to France. And the results are pretty much as everybody expected. Nobody expected anything different. 90% of the population voted to return to Germany, 8% of the population voted to remain with the League, and 2% of the population voted to go with France. This is a completely legal and completely part of the Treaty of Versailles, but it is trumpeted in Germany as a triumph of Adolf Hitler overcoming the unfairness of the Treaty of Versailles and of some German people being returned back to the bosom of the Reich. Adolf Hitler announces that all causes of conflict between Germany and France have now been resolved. Again, you can see the same pattern. Promises of peace, presenting himself as the statesman, presenting himself as the reasonable, honourable man of statecraft. And as we saw before, the threat of force, when called, turns out to be a bluff. So those examples give you a good sense of how Adolf Hitler is operating throughout the 1930s. So, to summarise, what have we seen? We've seen him taking actions that achieve his aims. The Naval Treaty allows him to start putting Germany back onto the map as a great power, as does rearmament. We've seen him bringing, or attempting to bring, Germans back into the Greater Reich, the Saar coalfield and the attempted Anschluss with Austria. What we have not seen yet is any movement towards this idea of Lebensraum in the East. Indeed, with the non-aggression pact with Poland, it looks like he's given that aim up. Of course, we know he hasn't. He's simply not ready to move on it yet, because in order to move on the Lebensraum issue, he's going to need arms, and an army, and an air force. So he has to rearm first. And rearming, of course, brings us on to the next thing that we can see. He is, at the same time as holding himself up as a responsible leader and statesman, brazenly breaking the terms of the Treaty of Versailles by rearming and entering into a naval agreement with Britain. What else have we seen? We've seen that Britain does not support the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. There are a number of times in this little period at the beginning of the 1930s where they could simply say, you shouldn't be doing this, but they don't. Because they either believe that the treaty was too harsh or it serves their own interest to have a strong Germany as a bulwark against the USSR. We've also seen that France is afraid to act alone. And finally, we've seen that tactic of Hitler's of threats of force followed by protestations of peace. Now, at this point, by 1935, 
Hitler has gone as far as he can by simple diplomacy. He's gone as far as he can by simply talking and doing small things. The next step is going to require something slightly more substantial. There is nothing more he can do without a major breach of the treaty. And in the next event, which happens in 1936, you're going to see those same ideas coming through again. Hitler attempting to achieve his aims, him brazenly breaking the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, Britain's response to him breaking the Treaty of Versailles, France's fear and unwillingness to act without Britain, and finally, that same tactic again of Hitler's threats of force followed by protestations of peace. The next thing he has to do, of course, is the remilitarization of the Rhineland. And that's what we'll cover in the next podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams.